everyone. I'm a little bit sick today, so if you all don't mind, I'm going to keep my speech a little bit shorter than I originally intended and leave open a lot of time for questions and answers. Um, thank you, Haley, for that wonderful introduction. So my speech today is about breaking into journalism, um, but I'm actually really curious to see how many people here are actually interested in becoming a journalist. So go ahead and raise your hand. So not a lot, four or five. Honestly, doesn't surprise me at all. I also was not interested in being a journalist when I was in school. And long story short, there is a shortage of conservatives who report the news. Um, this is about breaking into journalism, but I want to convince you guys that you should want to be a journalist in the first place. In 2013, only 7% of journalists identified as conservative. Out of all journalists who say they align with a political party, Three out of four say that they're Democrats. The vast majority of journalism jobs exist in counties that went to Hillary Clinton by 30 percentage points. People wonder why the news is so biased. Well, it's because the vast majority of people who write the news operate in a liberal bubble filled with people who all think the same way that they do, have the same value systems, and ultimately have the same inherent bias that makes it into their stories. A lot of people in this room probably want to work on the Hill or in the White House or on a campaign, and that's totally fine. If you want to advance conservatism, winning seats and passing legislation is incredibly important. I mean, right now, for example, Republicans control both chambers of Congress and the White House, and they were able to pass a historic tax reform bill. That's great news, right? Everybody gets to keep a bit more of their money businesses hire more workers, people reinvest in their businesses, it's a win-win situation. But if you watch or read the mainstream media, they might have told you something a little bit different. For example, the Associated Press tweeted that the newly passed tax bill would provide, quote, steep cuts for business and the wealthy. The Washington Post, Newsweek, Time Money, and the New York Times all described the bill as a, quote, tax hike on the middle class. NBC anchor Savannah Guthrie asked Paul Ryan if he was living in a quote, fantasy world, when he said that the tax bill would lead to higher wages and growth. The examples are literally endless, and the result is that despite 80% of households getting a tax cut in 2018, just 17%, 17% of people who were polled by the Wall Street Journal said that they thought they would be getting a tax cut. So you win seats, you win the presidency, you pass legislation that helps the American people, but the media is distorting, hiding, and even lying about the message before it ever reaches the airwaves. And it's not just the tax bill, guys. And media bias is not just about how stories are covered, but about what stories get covered in the first place. On May 4th, the unemployment rate hit 3.9% the lowest unemployment rate since 2000, the lowest rate in 18 years, and we saw an historic low in the black unemployment rate. But ABC chose to cover Star Wars Day six times more than the excellent job numbers. And let's not forget back when Trump first beat Hillary, self-proclaimed economics experts predicted that Trump would tank the economy. Paul Krugman, who somehow has a Pulitzer Prize, predicted a post-election day, quote, global recession with no end in sight. 
The Washington Post wrote that Trump would destroy the world economy if he were elected. On immigration, border crossings have hit an all-time low. Uh, but at the same time, Trump has been speaking about a violent gang called MS-13, whose members take advantage of immigration loopholes to recruit new members. There have been several murders by the gang just over here in Northern Virginia. But according to MSNBC's Joy Reid, only Fox News viewers should be concerned about or even aware of the gang. And unsurprisingly, CNN and MSNBC didn't cover a single second of President Trump's recent roundtable on immigration and MS-13. Well, that is, until they found a way to attack him for it, of course, because a few hours after the roundtable, mainstream outlets latched on to Trump calling the gang members animals and suggested that he was talking about all immigrants. Even after they were proven wrong, journalists like CNBC's John Harwood and CNN's Anna Navarro <coughs> doubled down and they said that Trump shouldn't have called people who rape and murder animals anyway because that's just too mean, right? For my pro-life people in the crowd, you're probably familiar with a little event that happens every year called the March for Life. This year, ABC, CBS, and NBC's nightly news programs covered the Women's March three times more than the March for Life. The March for Life, which had 100,000 attendees this year, got just two minutes and six seconds of coverage on those networks. Two minutes and six seconds for the 60 million unborn children who have been killed through abortion. It gets worse. The anti-gun March for Our Lives after the Parkland shooting received 13 times more coverage than the March for Life. Some outlets like USA Today even falsely inflated the crowd size of the March for Our Lives to 800,000 people, which is four times more than actually attended. And networks won't even use the moniker pro-life. To them, it's anti-abortion or abortion opponents, and while that's technically accurate, which one sounds more favorable? Anti-abortion or pro-choice? On North Korea, of course, the media predicted that we would be in the midst of a nuclear war by now, and yet we have the first ever meeting between a North Korean and United States leader ever in history. And let's not even get into the recent speculation about why First Lady Melania Trump hadn't been seen in public after her kidney surgery. Journalists suggested that Melania was hiding abuse from President Trump or perhaps she had just gotten a facelift. Um, and then they had the nerve to deny the fact that they had ever speculated about Melania's health in the first place. So my point is, is that conservatives can have all the victories in the world, but the public has to agree that they're victories. That's the nature of politics. And as a conservative journalist, I feel that it's my duty to correct this bias, to call out fake news, to tell the stories that don't get covered on mainstream media and ultimately to speak to the Americans who have felt for a very long time that their voices are not represented by the left-wing media machine. Hopefully I've convinced you at this point just how important journalism is. Because I was like you guys. I never intended to or wanted to be in journalism. And just about two years ago, maybe a little bit more, I was sitting in the same seats that you all are sitting in. I was at the DC Women's Summit as a university student. So all of this happened really quickly for me. So I'd like to share with you all how I ended up here and how I think that you can and should do it as well. As was so kindly mentioned in my introduction by Haley, I attended Georgetown University and I was the chair of the College Republicans. 
The spring of my junior year, with the tremendous help of Claire Boothloo's Policy Institute, my club brought Dr. Christina Hoff Summers to campus to speak about feminism. Liberal students had an absolute meltdown. They reported our club to the administration for creating an unsafe environment for students. Our club and Dr. Summers were labeled rape apologists. The university had to provide plainclothes security guards to the event to keep order. And afterwards, the school even threatened Claire Booth Luce if they did not edit protesters out of a video because it apparently made the school look bad. It was a firestorm, and myself and my friends faced a lot of flack from students on campus for the months and even the year that followed. But something else really amazing happened as well. Websites like Campus Reform, The Washington Times, The Daily Caller, the Washington Examiner and others published articles about the debacle, and we were met with a flood of support from people outside of our campus. And I personally got very inspired by this, and I started writing about my own experiences on campus and just how hard it is to be a conservative. I started writing a monthly column for my local newspaper, the Woodsboro Walkersville Times, and I actually spoke at a few Claire Booth Luce events in Texas and then again in Santa Barbara, California. When I got to graduation, I ultimately decided that what I wanted to do is I wanted to tell the stories of other campus conservatives who have faced the onslaught that all of us surely have. So I took an investigative reporting job at Campus Reform. I cut my teeth on liberal bias stories for a year on campuses across the country I did investigative work finding original stories and ultimately I learned the ins and outs of journalism and decided that this is what I wanted to do for a career. A year later, after getting some experience under my belt, I was hired by the Daily Caller to cover media and breaking news, which is how I'm able to throw all these media bias stories at you guys. And just two years out of college, I'm now an editor at a major news publication. So as someone who never took a journalist class, had no intentions of being a journalist, didn't even major in English, I'm going to share with you my three top tips for breaking into journalism. Number one is to develop good news judgment. I was originally going to tell you guys to write as much as possible and practice as much as possible, and that's absolutely true. You have to do that if you want to be a journalist. You should want to be published as many places as possible, whether it's your local paper, your school newspaper, or even freelancing for national outlets. But I think it's kind of obvious that you have to know how to write to do journalism, right? Most intelligent and well-educated people, which I think most of the people sitting in this room are, can probably write. But the thing that's a lot, a lot harder and I think really sets people apart to me is having that news judgment. You need to know the news to write the news. For example, what story is going to be most interesting to readers? At The Daily Caller, I know that our audience is primarily middle-aged conservative men. So stories about the GOP canceling August recess or the fact that an Iranian politician admitted to facilitating the 9-11 attacks yesterday are probably more attractive stories than the fact that Hillary Duff is pregnant with her new boyfriend. Is there a different way to frame a current story that's in the news, or is there something that the larger media is missing? For example, I often find that whenever media or Democrats have some new meltdown about something the Trump administration has done, it's probably something that Obama did too. But because the media was obsessed with Obama, they didn't feel the need to point it out or be angry about it when he did it. 
Uh, like when everyone freaked out about Cambridge Analytica mining data from Facebook for Trump's campaign, we found out that Obama did that too. Uh, when there was a meltdown over Trump referring to some African countries as assholes, not the best thing to say. Um, but Obama said the same thing about Libya in a 2016 interview with The Atlantic. Few people know that. Then there was another tantrum when Trump called Putin to congratulate him on his recent uh, electoral victory in Russia. Obama did the same thing. Having news judgment and viewing the news from a different angle, from a conservative angle, allows you to view this outrage machine for what it really is, which usually is just hypocrisy or unfair attacks on someone that they disagree with politically. Most basically, though, news judgment is about being generally aware of what's going on in the news. Because most of y'all are probably super into politics already, this is going to be a bit easier than someone who's coming in cold. But the best way to develop news judgment is to read and watch the news as much as humanly possible. It's hard work, and it's a time commitment, but it's really, really necessary. Subscribe to a daily newsletter like Politico's Playbook. You'd be hard-pressed to find anyone in the D.C. area who works in politics who does not read Playbook every single morning, even if you aren't in journalism. Download news apps on your phone and enable push notifications so that you're always aware of breaking news. I personally have the New York Times, CNN, Fox News, and of course the Daily Caller's brand new app, which is uh, actually really beautiful, so please download it. <laughs> And, oh my gosh, watch cable television. Watch it all the time. Um, I cover media, so I watch CNN, MSNBC, and Fox on three different TVs in my office for about eight to ten hours a day. And I will be the first to tell you that cable news can be absolutely infuriating. I'm often caught in my office yelling at the TV screens. But a lot of people watch cable news. I mean, millions of people watch it. And it really is the best way to get the basic summaries of all the big stories happening in the news on a daily basis. And by watching multiple networks, you can already get a feel for which narratives are coming from the right and the left before they're ever spoken by politicians. And of course, pick maybe five of your favorite websites and read their homepage every single morning, even if it's just the headlines. The best thing you can do during this process is take note of which stories really speak to you. Which stories light a spark in you? Which stories anger you? Which stories make you sad, make you happy, make you cry out with joy? Those are the stories that you want to cover when you're writing the news because those are the stories that are going to interest your readers. Eventually, if you do even half of these things, you're going to find yourself bringing up stories and conversations with friends and just being more generally aware of what's going on in the world than you were before. My tip number two, which is an obvious one, is network, network, network. And this applies to any job in the D.C. area, but I really can't understate the importance of networking. And this is coming from someone who, when I was in your seats, networking was the absolute last thing that I wanted to do. I absolutely hated it. I thought it was just small talk, and I, I really didn't like it. But I ended up getting my job at the Daily Caller because of networking. I was at an event at the Media Research Center, and I had a random encounter with a person who was a media reporter at the Daily Caller. And about six months later, when I was looking to leave campus reform, the DC had a media position open, and the person to email was none other than that media reporter I had run into at the 
Media Research Center event. So I sent him an email, and because he recognized my name, knew my face, and had read some of my work on campus reform, he fast-tracked my resume to the head of the company, and I was hired within a week. Now, not every job is going to work out that perfectly, obviously. And sometimes you have to grind and just send the millions of applications to millions of different places. But in journalism, getting that next level job and advancing in your career is all about making a name for yourself. Some people are capable of doing this with their work alone. But in most cases, you need FaceTime and you need to be personable. An editor is not going to want to question whether or not you're going to be comfortable in an interview with a source or if you're going to be comfortable talking about your story with other people. The reality, too, is that journalism is a bit of a cynical profession in the sense that recognizable names bring clicks to the website, they bring access to better interviews and people, and most people are just more willing to hire someone that they know personally because they know what they're getting. It's important to be confident as well, but primarily because of social media, the profession has become a lot more about personalities than it used to be. So my advice to you, especially because you're in DC this summer, is go to every possible event that you can go to. Go for the free food or go for the free drinks, but just show up. My number one tip for people who are not fans of networking is to go to an event with one to three other friends or interns. This is your home base, so if you go to talk to someone and maybe the conversation is shorter than you expected, or you didn't immediately find that next person you wanted to talk to, you migrate right back to your home base of your one to three friends and you're not aimlessly wandering around the event feeling awkward or uncomfortable. An added bonus is that the people you meet at these events will eventually become your sources for articles. I got a ridiculous amount of tips and videos and interview access just from people I've met over the years casually. And of course, you all are incredibly lucky to be in this room with all of these intelligent and professional young women who will hopefully become your friends for many number of many years. I strongly recommend that you take advantage of that and get to know one another while you're here. I personally am still close with a number of people that I met through Claire Booth Luce, and they've been invaluable, invaluable both personally and professionally. So don't let this opportunity go to waste. My number three tip for breaking into journalism is go beyond writing skills. I mentioned before that a lot of people know how to write. Most people know how to write. If you went to college, you probably know how to write. And there are a plethora of wannabe journalists who can write or have a journalism degree. So you have to develop additional skills to make yourself marketable. I always recommend that you take a media or television training class. And lucky for you all, you're going to hear from the very talented Rachel Semmel of District Media Group today at 1 PM. I've taken probably six to seven television training classes with the District Media Group, and I found them to be absolutely invaluable for my career. When I first started in journalism at Campus Reform, I would shake and I'd get nervous before I went on TV, and writing talking points was the most stressful process to me. Luckily, through all this training and practice and the help of District Media Group, I'm at the point where I do Fox hits once a week and I never get nervous and I'm always ready to go. There are a lot of people who can write, but there are a lot fewer people who can then go on a radio or television show and talk about their work in an effective and meaningful way. In an age where millions of people watch cable television, 
being able to share your stories through on-air communication is going to give you additional recognition and really get you to that next level. News outlets love people who can do this because honestly, print is dying. Digital journalism, meaning online content with additional focus on audio and video is the future. Having a reporter who can also star in an explainer video or go on a television network and represent the brand is super, super powerful. That's not even to mention how helpful it is to have reporters who have basic video editing or photography skills. Your editors are going to want to send you to gigs because you don't have to have a huge crew behind you doing all of the legwork. And when I'm writing about a crazy interview that happened on CNN that's maybe 20 minutes long, it's really helpful for my video team that I can just chop it up myself and put it in my article. Another important skill, social media. Surely not a surprise to y'all. Two-thirds of Americans get at least some of their news from social media. If you can establish a good following on Twitter and Facebook, you're going to have a lot more people reading your work, and you're also going to establish that personality, that, that facial and name recognition that I talked about earlier. Be consistent on social media, meaning post at least once a day. Summarize the piece in your own words or tweet out an interesting quote. People will follow you if you have unique or engaging content. Go beyond just hitting the share button on your article and add something a little bit extra. I personally went from about 2,000 to 19,000 Twitter followers in the past year alone. Some of that was because the Daily Caller is kind enough to retweet its reporters. Um, but I also found that just being myself has been really helpful. I like to share my reactions to stories. I throw in some snark when necessary, and I definitely don't back down from a fight. And luckily that strategy has worked out because I think people want to get to know the person behind the stories. The beauty of conservative journalism is that there is room for reporting and punditry and everything in between. In today's climate, where people are more partisan or divided than ever, I'm of the opinion that journalists should be honest about who they are and where they're coming from. Conservatives really do a much better job of that than the left. The left tries to obfuscate their true intentions and tries to convince people that they're the objective gatekeepers of journalism. A lot of them do this on purpose, but some have gotten so convinced that they're immune to bias that they actually believe they're being fair. And I think that's why CNN's ratings are so much lower than Fox and MSNBC. Fox and MSNBC are honest about the fact that they come from a certain viewpoint, whereas CNN hides behind this fake veil of objectivity that unravels really quickly when you actually watch their coverage. But the good news is that there's a need and a market for people who tell the truth. There is a reason that Fox News has been the number one cable news network for 197 months in a row. 197, yes, that is correct. The American people are clamoring for news that cuts through the bias. They're clamoring for news that speaks to the average American as opposed to the liberal coastal elites. And you all are so well equipped to correct the inherent biases of so many reporters that are reflexively anti-Trump, anti-Republican, and anti-conservative. You are the people who can provide the fresh and unique perspective that the news desperately needs right now. And I can't tell you that journalism is going to be a glamorous profession. It's demanding. When you're starting out, it's long hours, low pay, and it's very, very competitive. 
There's certainly a reason why journalists are known as being some of the heaviest drinkers. But journalism is also very rewarding. You get to learn something new every single day when you're attacking a story. Many journalists get to travel for a living. The people you work with are passionate and hardworking. And there's an incredible sense of achievement to being the first person to a story or seeing something you wrote trending on Facebook or Twitter. And trust me, you will never, ever, ever be bored. Thank you all, and with that, I'll open it up to questions. So uh, when you're first starting out, getting feedback from your editors is really, really important um, because they can kind of guide you into that place where you know you have enough for a story. I would say the best thing you can do when you're first cutting your teeth is practice blurbing other people's reporting. Um, so you would use their sources and basically just summarize what they reported. So that's a good way to get into the feel of writing a straight news story um, before you actually go and investigate something else, uh, yourself. General rule is that you need to have at least two on-the-record sources for a, a piece of original reporting, um, but it varies based on the subject and, and whether or not you can get people on the record or on background or off the record. Um, but a lot of that comes through practice as well. I basically learned all of the journalistic ethics and sourcing and everything through my first year at Campus Reform. Um, so just working with your editors and being willing to learn as you go is, is really valuable. Yeah, and that's part of the news judgment um, section that I talked about where you really want to try to have a new angle on a story that's been told a million times. So, for example, if uh, Donald Trump is being reamed in the media for calling and congratulating Putin um, on his Russian victory, my first thought is, is there a precedent for this? Has this ever happened before? And then I go back and search and I find out that Obama did the same thing. And immediately that's a new story and that's something that our readers are interested in because they want to know if the criticism that Trump is getting is being received fairly. Um, so that's just one example. But most stories, there's a different angle that you can take on it, whether it's a conservative angle or finding out what the precedent for something is, or even if it's just talking to a couple people that you know who are familiar on the topic, it can add some color commentary. There's usually something else that you can add that's unique to your story. Yes, definitely. I was prepared for this one. <laughs> okay, so um, probably the biggest story that I ever wrote um, and also the hardest one that I ever worked on was this past January um, during sort of the peak of the Me Too movement. Um, I received a tip about MSNBC host Chris Matthews um, settling a sexual harassment case back in 1999. And I broke the original reporting um, by getting NBC to confirm. I kind of strong-armed strong them a bit. 
Um, but then I wrote a follow-up piece about the culture at NBC and specifically on Chris Matthews' show and about how he had been verbally abusive and sexually harassing to a lot of women that had worked for him over the years. Now, this was the most difficult story I worked on because you have to realize MSNBC is a very liberal network, and I was reaching out to these women behind the name of the Daily Caller. So a lot of them were immediately very skeptical about whether or not I wanted to tell their stories fairly and accurately or if I was just looking for some kind of hit job on a liberal network. So ultimately, I had to convince these women who had been through uh, verbal abuse and harassment that I was there because I wanted to share their story and I wanted to hold this person accountable for what had happened to them. Luckily, I was able to convince about four or five sources that I was looking out for their best interests and I ended up um, breaking a story about the culture at MSNBC that I'm still really proud of. Sure, absolutely. Um, so for my pieces, I usually balance between two to three different headline constructions. Um, a common one is if I'm focusing on what someone said, I'll put the person's name and then a colon and then a short piece of their quote that helps summarize um, whatever it is that they're saying. Um, another thing is just to f try to pull out like five keywords from the article. So for example, um, yesterday a story broke about Iran, an Iranian politician admitting that they had provided passage for um, the 9-11 uh, airplane hijackers. So a great headline for that would be, Iranian politician admits um, Iran facilitated travel of 9-11 hijackers. So like those are all the key words. Um, basically take your lead and see if you can shrink it down into a headline. Um, and then front page headlines at the Daily Caller. I don't know if you guys read the Daily Caller, but we're, we try to be very fun and pithy with our headlines. So usually we'll um, throw in like a word like shocker at the beginning or something interesting to make people want to click on the story. So that's always a fun thing to do as well. It really depends. I think you should be writing, um, the word count should be based on what the subject of your article is. And you shouldn't try to force a certain word count um, just because you think it'll get more clicks. So for me, writing a short media piece about something crazy that happened on CNN is probably more like a 200 to 300 word piece. But when you're my colleague Chuck Ross and you're breaking stories about the DOJ indicting a former Senate aide for leaking confidential stories to the press, that's probably going to be closer to an 800 to 1,000 word story. So it really just depends on your subject matter and what's appropriate for getting all the information into the article. So I wouldn't force it one way or the other. Hello. Hi. So this is kind of a, uh, I guess, like a research-based question for those of us who are like pursuing degrees that are particularly reading and writing intensive. Mm -hmm. So we're just so accustomed, and I'm sure this is your experience as well, we're very accustomed to writing like very academic, academically worded papers that are very explanatory in nature of like, 
history and things of that nature. So how how do you go about kind of like lessening the extent to which you use very big words and again like really explanatory paragraphs? Like how do you kind of I don't want to say dumb it down, but that's that's no, that's yeah, <laughs> no, that's a good <laughs> phrase. Yeah, I think that's true that um, that when you're writing news pieces, they do have to be a little bit more basic and less academic, um, again, depending on your subject matter. Uh, honestly, this is going to sound really lame, but I think Trump is a really good example for this because he is like the first president, I think, that uses second to third grade reading level as opposed to like fifth or sixth, like former presidents have done. And while he sounds silly sometimes, it's actually a really effective means of communication. Um, and I think journalism people should kind of have the same mindset that we're writing to a broad audience and we want to make sure that everyone can read our work. Um, so when you're going through, you want to make sure that you're not using words that can't be replaced by sim um, synonyms that are a lot more simple. Um, and then the, the other thing is that if you are writing from an academic standpoint, usually you're adding a bit of editorialization, meaning you're explaining things from your point of view, and all of that can be cut out in a news piece, so that helps simplify as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so a lot of journalists have a specific beat that they write about, so mine's media primarily, so um, that means a wide range of things from um, interesting interviews that happen on cable news where I clip the video and put it in an article and describe what happened. Um, some of that means writing about media bias or fake news or fact-checking the media, um, but I also do general politics as well. So what you'll find in most newsrooms is that reporters have a, an assigned beat, but if necessary, they can go outside of that beat to hit places that aren't being covered by other reporters. Um, so that's how I decide what stories to write. And then we also have people at the Daily Caller, however, who are focused on viral content. So their job is to pick whatever story they think is going to be the most interesting among readers and is going to get the most clicks. And that's something that you just have to develop over time through a combination of reading and watching the news and seeing, especially what gets covered on cable, because cable does a good job of picking those stories that really draw people in, otherwise they wouldn't watch. Um, and then also checking your analytics. So if you're writing at a place and they won't let you see how many clicks you get on your articles, you should ask your editors for that, um, because knowing what stories do well and which don't on the site can be really helpful to um, find pointing that news judgment. Yeah, so um, you can use anonymous sources as well. Um, I think it's acceptable as long as you have two to four anonymous sources and that um, the people you're, who you're speaking to are actually really close to the subject. Um, I think what sometimes the liberal media makes the mistake of when they use anonymous sources is they use people who aren't um, first-hand sources, they're second-hand. So it'll be someone who heard from someone or someone who has knowledge of this thing that happened but they weren't there. 
Um, and so that gets them into trouble. A really great example of this was um, when CNN reported that Donald Trump Jr. Um, had been in coordination with WikiLeaks before the campaign um, with the uh, Democratic leaks from the DNC server. So there was a story that came out from CNN and they said that WikiLeaks had emailed Don Jr. the stolen emails from the DNC before they were released to the public. So everyone freaked out. Um, but as it turns out, both of their anonymous sources gave them the wrong date of the email. So it turns out that Don Jr. got the WikiLeaks emails the same date as everybody else, as the general public. Um, the reason that happened is because the anonymous sources only read the email to CNN. CNN didn't demand that they see the email themselves. So it's really about being smart and just making sure that you can confirm for yourself before you run something. Um, and in terms of fact-checking those types of articles, conservative media does have its own sources as well. Um, so usually we would reach out to our own people who are familiar with the situation and see if we can confirm the reporting of those outlets. Okay, great. Well, I think we're just out about time anyway. So if there are no further questions, um, thank you all so much. I appreciate talking to you.